Welcome everybody, this is Gaming Guide and the podcast that uncovers the side stories of the gaming world as well as the world of Japanese to English localization. I'm Andrew and right here with me is Mike. Hey everybody. And we also have with us Mel Oak and Emilio Gandara. Gandara, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> They're joining us from Ace Translate, which has localized quite a few games uh, across the spectrum here. We've got Final Fantasy Dimensions 2, uh, Romancing Saga, those remasters that popped up on just about every system. I saw those show up on the Xbox Marketplace and I've been saving my rewards points for one of them. Are <laughs> online too recently, which is nice. Uh, Captain Subasa, which is a game we also talked with uh, Zach Davison about. And uh, something very uh, interesting. This is early times. Halo 2 is on the list. Now. <laughs> and yeah, something very, very near and dear to my heart. A series that I truly, deeply love. Shenmue. I see the latest installment, Shenmue 3. And I, I'm looking forward to chatting about that one. <laughs> That's Thank on your you Twitter. Much, uh, Mel and Emilio for coming out for this. We really do appreciate it. And we look forward to chatting with you. Yes, thank you. We're happy to be here. Yeah. All right. All right. So uh, take, okay. Oh, I got the first one. All right. So uh, Mel, what got you into Japan in the first place? How did this all start? So I grew up in Hawaii and, you know, in America, you have to take two years of foreign language in high school, but the high school I went to didn't offer Chinese, at least not initially. And so I decided to take Japanese. Hawaii and Japanese just seemed to make sense if I wanted a career in Hawaii in the future. Uh, but from there, you know, you start studying the language, you fall in love with the culture, everything from food to music, uh, even anime. And I just continued my studies and here I am now. How old were you when you started? Uh, well, I was a freshman. So what does that put me at? 14, 15? Yeah, I don't even remember. About 14. Yeah. Okay. And it was it for the same for you as well, Emilio? Uh, pretty much. I mean, like, I started out just really being into games and stuff, anime, music, just like at least as far as middle school, I think. Um, you know, like, I don't know. I grew up in the, in Puerto Rico, uh, but we had, okay. we had t TV from the States. So back then it was like toonami what was got was what got me into anime um so if anybody remembers that like it started with like sailor moon and gundam wing uh right. stuff mm -hmm. like that and that was that was what got me into japanese in the first place and then i started taking classes in college and then eventually i came here to japan to teach english and then just things kind of like developed and now i'm doing this you graduated from english teaching to translation yeah. localization mm -hmm. in japan what was the uh how did you get your start there with english teaching um i i joined through the jet program oh. uh so right. yeah i got in in 2011 i did that for a couple of years huh. that's uh, i am a, a jet alum as well <laughs> oh nice i think mel is too look at that the whole crew <laughs> not me <laughs> Yeah. They, they, I was the one jet reject. <laughs> I started this other company called RCS. That's how I met Mike. We were both, you're at RCS, right, Mike? 
I, I was at RCS um, when I did the uh, stint in Saitama. So yeah. I, I initially went to Japan in 2001. That's when I graduated from college and I went on the jet program at that time. Um, but they, it was only a, I only signed up for one year. They asked you to decide very quickly. I don't know if you guys remember how, how uh, quickly that contract question came up and, uh, you know, 9-11 happened and everything was a little weird. And I was like, all right, I'm going to head home. And then <laughs> I regretted it. <laughs> and then I got to meet Andrew in Saitama years later because Jet doesn't let you reapply or didn't at that time. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Wow. How long have you guys been living in Japan now? Let's go back to Mel. So I was actually initially rejected from Jet because <laughs> I applied to be a CIR. And at my first interview, I was so nervous that I just watched it. Uh, so I came to Japan in 2005, teaching at Eikaiwa for one year, and that's private uh, English teaching. Mm -hmm. And then I reapplied to JET and came back to be a JET in two, 2006. As as an ALT or a CIR? As a CIR for what the is, prefecture. So, what is CIR? Those who aren't familiar, the ALT is assistant language teacher, and mm -hmm. Mel was a CIR. He's better mm -hmm. to describe that one. <laughs> so CIR stands for Coordinator of International Relations, and you work at local government offices where you help translate either like tourist pamphlets. You do some mm. interpreting if any international guests come over. And out of the entire JET program, I think 99% are ALTs, mm -hmm. and then that last uh. one or two percent are CIRs. So it's for the people who actually have studied, you know, Japanese are proficient or somewhat proficient at it. Was, was, did you know pretty early on that you were good at language? Well, like, I grew up speaking Chinese at home, uh -huh. so I've kind of grew up bilingual. Okay. So I feel like I had kind of an advantage at language. I think Emilio's the same way since. Yeah. Emilio, you grew up speaking, you're in Puerto Rico. Yeah, I grew up in Puerto Rico, so I grew up like Spanish is my my mother tongue. Um, but I I also grew up speaking English as well. I don't really remember learning English. I just kind of learned it as I as I grew as well. So yeah, I, I guess I could say I, I grew up bilingual as well. Yeah. Okay, I remember when I first started learning Japanese. I mean, I was good enough, but I, I felt like my brain was solidly locked in English. And I had to shake it loose somehow in my brain. And, you know, I've gotten to the point now, I mean, I can pass practice in one test at home. I've never, I've never actually passed the, the test because uh, of the time limit, I think. But, uh, but yeah, that's cool. I've, so you guys pretty much knew, well, so you're, you had some advantage because you were both uh, brought up in bilingual homes. So like, I know for me, when I first started just learning I mean, the first shock, of course, is that the verb's always at the end. And that, I don't know, that was like kind of mildly shocking to me at first. But did you, you guys didn't have anything like that at all because you were bilingual already? Let's start, let's go back to Mel, I guess. Um, it wasn't so weird for me. I mean, the thing about Chinese grammar is actually is, is very similar to English grammar. But mm -hmm. again, the words are different. The pronunciations mm -hmm. are different. So... I figure yeah. you study a language, things are going to be different. It wasn't that weird to me. Yeah. I mean, to get to the point where I was proficient took time. But yeah. when I was learning it, I was just like, okay, well, this is Japanese. That's just how it is. So, 
Right. I, I'm curious about the um, the years growing up. Mel, you mentioned you grew up in Hawaii. You were, you were born mm -hmm. and raised there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Born and you spoke raised. you spoke Chinese in the home. Yes. Which which variety? Is this Cantonese? Uh, I spoke Cantonese. Yeah. Oh, okay. cool. Were you were you raised literate in the home? Were they were they teaching you to read as well, or is it only spoken language? I so in Hawaii they have Chinese school if you wish to go, which mm -hmm. means it's an after school program sort of, but after school mm -hmm. hours. So yeah. I went to Chinese school for about six years when I was a kid, where oh, I did okay. learn to write a little bit, but I forgot most of it. Uh -huh. But in terms of like knowing kanji. Yeah, I guess mm -hmm. it was an advantage I had going into Japanese. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I, I'm I'm curious about the experience there, like for Emilio regarding kanji, uh, because obviously kanji for me as a student, it's been quite the obstacle. Uh, it's been many years. I I learned a few to make sure I could survive just fine. And I'm <laughs> cool. But then I realized, like, if if I really want to do anything with this language, I have to be literate. So I've been working on it, but I'm I'm curious what uh, approach you took, Emilio. Oh, we got to switch mics. I yeah, got no. it. I <laughs> got him. I got him. Um, so I'm probably the bad, the not the best person to ask about this because I was obsessed with kanji. Um, <laughs> like, I couldn't. That makes you a good person. Everyone's gonna have it. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I was into it fast enough like we were learning hiragana first and then the next quarter we were learning katakana the next quarter we finally started learning kanji but i was like so ready so i <laughs> um and so yeah like i just practiced it all the time uh, like what what few kanji the book you know the books the textbooks that we used uh began to you know teach which by the way my university used the nakama books i don't know if uh anybody's uh, familiar with those, no, I've seen those. They switched to Genki eventually, but yeah, they used the Nakama ones first. Um, but then eventually, like, that was a good start. But I feel like when I really got proficient, I guess, or, like, more comfortable with kanji is I used RTK, if anybody's familiar with remembering the kanji. Um, I forgot what uh, the author's name off the top of my head, but it's just a method that uses... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's... Oh, I can't remember the name, but it's called Remembering the Kanji. Yep. And it uses uh, memory palaces, which are mm -hmm. like this idea of creating a very vivid image in your head related to like the, the different parts of kanji. And then as the kanji get more complex, you're, you, you like start to put pictures. Um, basically, you decorate your memory palace in a way. So like, mm. it's like, you know, three different parts. It, you, you just remember what each part is. And then you, when you just, when you're trying to think of it, you put those things together kind of. Um, and, you know, that was effective to kind of learn a lot of them really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't teach you how to read them. It just teaches you like their basic core meaning. Um, right. So... Yeah. Uh, I remember the introduction to that book. And it's funny because it goes back to sort of like what Mel was saying about his. Uh, having that slight advantage before it's like theoretically it's supposed to put you on the same level as a chinese student who is familiar with kanji already it doesn't mean that they know how to read it with the japanese pronunciation but they understand the meaning of it yeah 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 so i when i was studying that i was also like on my own just you know adding in like studying actual compounds and how to read them and what the readings are and like onyomi kunyomi that sort of thing no. as well at the same time 
So you went way, uh, way ahead of the uh, course of study for the school. Uh, well, this was after I came to Japan. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. So at, at university, I just, I did three years of Japanese. Um, mm. And, you know, to be honest, when I first came to Japan, even after that, I didn't feel that proficient. I didn't feel like I could, you know, have a conversation too easily. It took, it took a, quite a bit of time before I got to that point. <laughs> yeah, that's perfectly understandable. I, I didn't mention this to you guys earlier, but uh, I, I am uh, a language instructor. I'm, uh, I'm uh, an ESL teacher. And look at me stumble to try and think of these basic words. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, so I, I understand that uh, even after three years of study, it, it doesn't mean much for a lot of folks. It really doesn't. Uh, they say that it takes about seven years of standard, rigorous exposure before someone really establishes a proper comfort level. Plus, you could mm -hmm. say something grammatically accurate, and but it's still stiff or awkward or something, you know? You, you get into that zone for, for a while, for a couple years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Yeah, I think, so We're you want to get on to localization, which would make sense. But what? We, we haven't heard uh, a little bit about the details from Mel. Yeah, we, we went, did we ask about goals? That was when, the next one. Well, I wanted to go back to when Andrew was saying when trying to learn Japanese, it was hard because, you know, the verbs were in a different order and mm -hmm. it, it was hard to pick up. And then Mike just said, you know, some, sometimes when you speak Japanese in those early stages, things were really stiff. I mean, that's the same way with localization. When people aren't used to translation, everything's going to be stiff. Everything's going to be yeah. a direct translation. And especially in creative fields, you don't really want that. You know, uh, I remember working on a marketing document once mm -hmm. and this was, not just language but also culture but in japan they market a lot of products to like for the women or popular among men or they use that kind of language and uh yeah i had to like email the client and say you know you might want to change the wording on this at least for the english version you know you don't want to say this product was only made for women when mm -hmm. technically men could also use it or you know other genders or whatever could also this, use it yeah this topic is fascinating to me so you this is part of the localization, not just translation, right? Mm -hmm. You have to, I mean, let's just, yeah. I mean, how can we put this? The, there's a certain level of, I don't know, political correctness that Japan's mm -hmm. just not aware of mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. you have to make them aware of in the yeah, translation right. process, the transcreation process. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of times where the Japanese writers are writing for the Japanese market. And what's yeah, acceptable yeah. in Japan may not be acceptable ever everywhere else in the world, right? Mm -hmm. I, I remember hearing this one story, and this wasn't one of my projects, and I won't mention the project title just in case, but the, the story <laughs> had included a plot where they said that Christmas, you know, was a made-up holiday just to sell more presents and gifts. You know, it was like, mm -hmm. a, like a corporate thing, and, you know, the localizer had to email the, the agency or the client and say, you might not want to publish a story <laughs> in, in the game or change it a little. And I think they ended up changing it. So, Yeah, I might need to localize that one just a, a little yeah, more. Right. right. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. That's... Oh, and your question was goals? Yeah. So when you set out, when you started learning Japanese, was it just to learn, was it just to be able to understand anime without subtitles? Or were you immediately like, I want to be a translator 
for video games? Was it pretty clear in the beginning? Well, again, initially, I mentioned that I wanted to study Japanese just to have it in my toolkit because mm -hmm. I was in Hawaii and I figured if I ever wanted to work there, it would be a nice skill to have. But it's, it certainly seemed that I visited Hawaii once and uh, yeah, there was there were a lot of Japanese folks there. <laughs> oh yeah, a lot of tourists, also a lot of local Japanese people as well. Mm -hmm. But of course, more on the tourist side, if I were to get a job yeah. there. Oahu? Uh, You're from Oahu? I'm from Oahu, yeah. Oh yeah. Lived pretty close to Waikiki, I guess, but we would never go there as locals because that's <laughs> okay. the tourist spot. So. That's where the tourists go, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I first realized I wanted to get into translation, or at least localization, when I was working on Halo 2. And I was only a tester, mm. but they had hired me to test out the Japanese version because mm. they couldn't find any Japanese proficient testers at the time. And I was kind of like just there looking for a job. Yeah, I got oh. hired as a temp to, to do it for like three months. Have you played the latest Halo in Japanese? I have not. Is it bad? Or... No. Uh, you know what? The, the announcer... Uh, you know, it's it's great. There's a level, of, it's a, a certain amount of humor to his voice that I think is better for the Japanese market because the the American version is just like you've killed that guy. You know, it's mm -hmm. just really just want to well, be badass. And it does that's on uh, kill streak uh, names like Killtacular. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. So it does have some humor. But yeah, the Japanese voice, I I, <laughs> I find myself laughing at that guy. It was. I think it's pretty good. I mean. Mm -hmm. From what I can tell, anyway. So that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Were you doing QA for for Microsoft, or were you doing QA for a separate entity that Microsoft then uh, hired to do this particular testing? Well, I had signed up for a temp agency, and they mm -hmm. placed me there at Bungie. So I was on the Microsoft campus, oh, but okay. I was just a contractor. Huh. In Hawaii or oh. California? No, no. This was in this was in the Redmond in Seattle. I went to oh, the University yeah. of Washington. Oh, gotcha. I okay. Hawaii to go to college. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. All right. <laughs> Was there anything you can remember in particular about the Halo Two localization that you uh, liked? You know, thought, oh, that's a that's a good name for something, or <laughs> like the Needler. You know. Um, I don't remember anything like that. I remember some of the weird Japanese I caught. Uh, hmm. where like they translated space as like space in a room as opposed to space in the sky oh like, yeah yeah <laughs> that's so like machine space. translation right there or something yeah i don't know what happened there but yeah it could be machine translation or they just didn't have enough context because you know mm. a lot of times in population you just send us text files without any context about you know what that word is referring to or what this scene is referring to or sometimes who the speaker is sometimes they don't even include that information so yeah, we do a lot of guesswork in this line of work. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, there is one thing I remember from working on that job, and this had nothing to do with the Japanese, but the mm -hmm. arbiter. Yeah, it wasn't always known as the arbiter. They had a different name for him, and I can't remember oh. exactly what it was. Mm. But uh, I remember the legal team saying, "Oh, you can't use, you know, the uh, the Islamic name for a shaman or something like that." Oh, They're yeah. like, "Yeah, we need to change that." And I was like, "Huh, interesting." Yeah. Wow. Changing okay. Probably a good call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah probably of course. probably had, so. Yeah. With um, oh, what was that name like? Kakuto Chojin or something like that. It was some fighting game where they were using Islamic prayer in the background. Oh boy. Oh no. Oh, I remember. I remember something like that. 
And I think Zelda, even Ocarina of Time had an issue with this where later later printings had to have some music changed because they used samples. They were all using samples apparently from some particular royalty-free disc and uh, they didn't realize what they were using. <laughs> all right, so yeah, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about localization in, in more detail. Uh, can you tell us that, we, we already touched upon it really quickly, but let's go back to Emilio. Uh, what, uh, what's the difference between localization and translation? All right, so translation in and of itself, I would just say is taking the, basically like rewriting what is said in one language into another. So, you know, with no regards to regional differences or, you know, like cultural sensitivity or anything like that, just like very simple, just core stuff, like a, like a mathematical equation almost. Whereas localization then you really have to take into um, consideration like all these other aspects that are cultural or that are specific to demographics and whatnot. So like, like what you were talking about earlier with, you know, um, with like these names or like using uh, like those specific chants or that sort of thing that, you know, other cultures might be offended by or that are just sensitive in general. So that is the sort of thing that you have to be, uh, you know, really mindful of, or like, or like Mel was saying earlier with the, uh, with the marketing, that's just like very, very gender based, which, you know, you see in the U S anyway, like, um, yeah, yeah. Like not to get too off track, but I, it just makes you think of like, like like the pink tax. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Um, Where like some products when they market them for women like they they color it pink or whatever just like to just super like very uh obvious things like that they end up charging more for some reason oh wow Um, it's like the same the same product but because they are like marketing more towards like a certain demographic they end up charging more and you know uh just things like that um but yes it there are a lot of sensitive uh sensitivities uh, sensibilities uh sorry that yeah, are very specific to a culture. And that's one of the things that localization um, keys into. So it's translation with that lens, like through that lens mm-hmm. where you, you know, you, you think of, oh, should I say this? You know, when you're translating, there are different ways of saying the same thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so localization makes that more, like you need to be more choosy with how you say, you know, word choice and everything, how you, how you say things. And is what about transcreation? That that was a term that was completely new to me when we interviewed Zach Davison. Is there yeah, any I mean, there? I could I could talk about this, but Mel can probably say even better and like give better examples. But yeah, I would say basically it's going one step beyond and like adding more of an original an original voice into the translation, um, not just stopping at you know trying to be close to one-to-one, which in, in most cases is impossible to begin with. Um, but, you know, there, you know, there's a lot of uh, different examples that you can use. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, for example, taking things like the, the classic jelly donut in, in mm-hmm. Pokemon, mm-hmm. where they had the onigiri and they called them jelly donuts. That's like the, the ultimate, like, memed out uh, example mm-hmm. of transcreation. But yeah, I should, like, let me... Like, let's take it over to Mel. I'm sure yeah, yeah. he has lots yeah. to say. Uh, my idea of transcreation isn't actually translation at all. 
like they basically want you to write something from not from scratch, but they, you use the Japanese as a reference, mm. and then you write something for your target market. Um, so I was offered a job once. It was actually for Street Fighter, <laughs> and so you had you had the, the blog or you know you had the blurb for Ryu, and it would say you know he was from Japan and he's studying you know this style of martial art, blah blah blah. But they didn't want you to translate that. They just want you to write something based on that. Mm -hmm. um, and so you would try to think of a way to make it sound cool and whatnot. Is the reason for that because the languages can be so different at times or just like don't even try to base it on this oh, too much? Yeah, I mean, like Emilio was saying, you know, there are sensibilities in different markets. So they kind of trust you with writing something that sounds better. And it basically is written from in English from the start, but you're just using the Japanese as a reference point. So like you can okay. draw references from there. You could probably include some of your own stuff if you wanted to. Like if you wanted to include a joke that wasn't in the original Japanese, you could. Um, mm -hmm. I think I think I heard one example where it was like the the Batman movie, the animated Batman movie that took place in Japan. Apparently, Batman, Batman Ninja, yeah, yeah. I think. Oh, what was it? Was it made in English? Or made in Japanese, but then the other the other party got a copy of the video with no audio and no script. Oh my god! And so they basically just had to create the script <laughs> from scratch based on the video. So that's transcreation right there. <laughs> that's amazing. They had a reference, just the video, but they didn't have any audio, no words. <laughs> so they just wrote the script from scratch. It's some mystery yeah. science theater stuff there. Yeah, yeah. I have you seen it? That movie. Uh, yeah, I saw it. I can't remember which language I watched it, but I did. I did see it. I think I it, watched it in English. It's pretty good for what it is. My friend thought it was going to be something more serious or something, but really, it seems like the point was let's get as many anime tropes in here as possible in the Batman world, and just have fun with it. Uh, and, and Japanese tropes as well, right? Yeah, Japanese Japanese tropes, anime tropes, all that stuff. Let's just throw it in, see what happens. And uh, to me, it kind of worked as as crazy as it was. Um, so, so I'm curious about this though. This this transcreation, you know, how often do you find that uh, a developer or whatever comes to you with a product, a game, saying, "Feel free, go ahead." to some level we have that power i would say mm -hmm. like within individual dialogue lines but it really depends on the client right mm -hmm. so if they're strict about how much freedom you get then you have to stick closer to the source um, if you've ever listened to jeremy blaustein talk about you know his days uh doing like metal gear solid and stuff like he he transcreated a lot of those lines for sure mm. yeah. you know, stuff that completely wasn't in the japanese but mm -hmm. he just, you know, pulled in uh, quotes from other books, or he just made up his own stuff, and it worked. It worked really well. Yeah, I, I think he made a lot of the right decisions there. Mm -hmm. From what from what I heard, uh, they found out about it later, and we didn't <laughs> like his choices, and like they, they changed it in some of the remasters or whatever. I don't oh know. man, are you kidding me? Yeah, I didn't know about that. So yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, I don't know about Metal Gear Solid uh, having changes. I know there was the Twin Snakes, but I never played through that. Um, but then there was a, a rewrite and a re-recording for Symphony of the Night that I think showed up on the PSP version. And that, mm -hmm. might, that might actually be what's in the, um, that new one on the PS4. 
I, I don't know if it uses the same script or not. It doesn't say yeah. what is a man, pile of secrets, all that. Right. Like I think they made some changes around that. And of course they had different voice actors. What what is something that you guys want people to know about localization, transcreation, translation, whatever you want to call it? Is there something that most people don't know about that you wish more people knew about? Let's go back to Emilio. Hmm. I think maybe a lot of people might have like misconceptions about the process, mm -hmm. which, you know, when you're on the outside, like how much can you really know? Right. But yeah, I think, you know, and, and going back to like the, the Twitter wars and whatever, and, and getting, you know, getting flamed to death uh, for stuff like a lot of the times we really don't get um, as much, you know, context and stuff like that as we wish. Like sometimes the game has been out and you can play the Japanese version while you're working on the English text. But a lot of the times that's not the case. And you can only, you know, go with your gut feeling a lot of the time. And sometimes, you know, you can ask questions. Uh, you can ask the developer for some clarification and stuff. But that's a process that takes a lot of time and resources, which sometimes you don't have. Like sometimes things are due like next day, next yeah, day. Like yeah. there's just, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do, right? So you, ha you have to make some like executive decisions sometimes. Um, so uh yeah like cut us some slack i guess <laughs> i don't know yeah um, exactly yeah. exactly i guess like there's there's like the bandwagons and stuff you know and that sucks but it is what it is it's twitter so uh um, <laughs> don't let it get to you too bad as long as I you're know, getting like, jobs yeah yeah and and what can i say i don't know like it's yeah, I'm... So I, I have a question about this, about the practicality of it. it may be opening a can of worms here, but I'm curious, like if you saw something, you know, you worked on a game, it makes it to market and you realize that you're not happy with something, right? Of course, there might be a hundred people on Twitter who aren't happy with something, but that's not important here. What I'm saying is that you, as the, the artist working here on the translation, realize I would actually like the opportunity to change that would you ever have that opportunity or are you working as a third party and you no longer have access to it is this completely out of the question i mean they patch things like mad all the time so i'm not sure DLC. yeah it's it's very i like in my experience i feel like it's very unlikely that you'll have a chance to fix stuff after it's been out unless you know it would have to come from the developer being like hey you know, like, let's use you again to change something here. But, un un you know, unless that's the case, like, very unlikely. You kind of just have to live with your <laughs> decisions, you know. If, yeah. there, if I, I'm wondering about the possibility of, say, a game that sort of establishes its uh, mythos as it goes on, and it might need to go back and change little things in previous games. Have you ever encountered that? Is that has that come up? retconning so to speak <laughs> mm. i think there is more of style like etc yeah yeah and you know in most cases you want to stick to legacy mm -hmm. i think mel would agree with me on this like if something has been established in a certain way mm -hmm. they probably want you to keep it that way um mm. but now with like all these remasters coming out um I think developers have a, a 
are in an interesting position to be able to change a lot of these things. Mm. Um, which, you know, for better or worse, because like Andrew was saying, like, you know, um, you don't you, you don't want to lose those meme lines, like all your base are belong to us and stuff like that. Um, so good, man. Yeah, love, right. Love and, it. Love it. But, you know, on the other hand, if um, I the, the way I personally feel about this is if the original text could use a touch up, like mm -hmm. maybe include both. I don't know. Like, I don't know what, mm. what the best way of doing it is, but if it's something that was really, you know, uh, like done in a certain way back, back in the days, but now you have a chance to make it better. Like why not? I guess, I don't know. Like it's probably very case by case. Look, Tim Rogers it, had that whole thing about Sephiroth's lines and everything in, in Final Fantasy seven. Oh, was, that was really good. Yeah. That was that a, video. Yeah. That was really interesting. So you guys worked on, uh, a series that has a legacy it's the romancing saga remasters but i don't i i didn't play those and i'm not sure if the uh, first one was made available in north america or not or are you you were the first ones to translate romancing saga three right is that also the case for two okay yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna let mel answer this one <laughs> <laughs> so so how was that we had there was a Romancing Saga series. You had all three games there. How did that mm -hmm. work out? Did they give you any particular guidance, uh, things you had to stick to? or How did you go about it? Um, no, not really. They just threw me the script and I went <laughs> for it. So it was actually me and two other guys. Emilio wasn't on that project. But um, because it was an old game, there were a lot of uh, references and a lot of Japanese wikis online. Mm. So I could pretty much find all the information I could. Um, the difference between how we approach two and three were a little different because on two, I was the sole translator and oh, okay. they only paid me to translate. And I wanted to make sure that it would get an editing pass after my translation. Mm -hmm. And even though they said they would find an editor, they never did. Oh man, <laughs> so, they were just being uh, nice to you. So if you find Romancing Saga 2 to be a little bit rough around the edges, that's why. Uh, and so oh, when man. three came around, I made sure I, to ask if I could hire my own editor mm -hmm. that, you know, also pay me for, so I could cover his expenses. Uh, and yeah, we did hire, I hired actually two editors. Okay. I hired a friend mm. who was a huge Romancing Saga 3 fan, mm. had played the original, had played all the modifications. He knew everything about the story. So he was like my oh, context editor. Nice, nice. And then I hired an actual like editor, editor to edit the English. So three should read and play a lot better than two did all right okay on a language level yeah do you it find look at that and see that we don't have romancing saga in the mix with those you know because i remember that was the first thing i did when i saw them come up on the xbox marketplace i was like oh yeah let me wish list this and uh, wish list mm. that where's the first one where do i get it <laughs> it's it's uh important to be able to write in english right that's probably more important with the transcreation part but you can't you can't just translate you find that in order to be a good localizer or translator whatever you want to call it in general you you just have to be a good writer in general right yeah yes i agree yes <laughs> do you find there's some translators i mean we're not going to name any names but <laughs> that just like are not creative and maybe they're they'd be better with 
with mechanic like uh, you know car manuals and stuff like that and that stuff pays a lot anyway right so mm-hmm. it's like it's just a totally different skill basically different there, strengths there's a, there's a lot to say here um mm-hmm. yes i think some people are better as direct translators you know they might be translating patents or mm-hmm. you know, automobile manuals or whatever mm-hmm. uh, i mean you still have to be a good writer in that sense like you have to know how to write manuals. Yeah. You have to know how to write a patch. So you just, it just depends uh, on your skill set, on the way your brain is wired, I guess. Like with localization, you have to be super loose, you know. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned earlier, when studying Japanese, it was it was hard. You, you'd always be thinking in English before you spoke Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you get more fluent in Japanese, you start thinking in Japanese to speak Japanese. And as you get better at localization, you start... Mm-hmm thinking about writing the meaning as opposed to writing the words in the Japanese source text. You think about what they're trying to say and convey that in English. Right, 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 right. Using a dictionary and translating each word as it is. It's just, I brought this up with Zach as well. It gets to a point in your study where you start to see translations and you'll have like a Japanese sentence here and then the English translation. English translation has no words from the Japanese side at all. <laughs> Not a single one, but it is a great translation. It's the most appropriate translation. It's like, uh, this is, you know, I feel like if you're, if, if people that are listening to this, that maybe aren't, aren't localizers or translators or of any kind or aren't bilingual, like this, you know, this is, this was an epiphany to me in my study. And probably a lot of people out there don't, don't know that this, this is a thing. It's just, it's a, I feel like it's an interesting phenomenon almost, you know? So it's, it's a bit tough too, because the order of Japanese is almost the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Remember they were talking about individual sentences or entire paragraphs. And mm-hmm. so sometimes, you know, if we are translating an entire paragraph, we don't want to translate sentence by sentence. Like sometimes we want to flip the script, like literally. And write right. the last sentence first and then the first sentence last. Right, right, right. And so sometimes if you're using like a translation tool that lines up these sentences, mm-hmm. sometimes you might even get a sentence that doesn't match up <laughs> with this exact sentence. Right. Because that translation was actually up here. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, that's definitely a different flow if you want to get that effect. Mm-hmm. I hear you. <laughs> it looked like you wanted to say something there, Emilio. I hope we didn't cut you off. Oh, no, yeah. Um, I was just going to mention, like, just a very simple to understand uh, example that kind of proves that point Mm -hmm. is sayings, like popular sayings, proverbs. A lot of those things are so, like, such a specific image to a culture that if you try to translate it directly, it just makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, like... um, like birds of a feather flock together. Like if you try to say that exactly in Japanese, like people would yeah. be like, what? I mean, sometimes you get lucky because like, uh, like hitting, uh, killing a bird, uh, killing two birds with one stone yeah. is basically the same thing in Japanese. I like was, I was shocked yeah. when I saw that. I said, I, I used to teach a class on idioms when I was, I used to work in um, Midtown Manhattan doing TOEFL prep for <laughs> adults coming over. And, uh, yeah, idioms were always just like completely insane. It's just, there's no way to know. But then I yeah. saw one one day and I was like, I've been waiting my whole life to see an idiom that translates <laughs> perfectly. That's got to be 
maybe that early Portuguese influence or something, because <laughs> they also have uh, Pearls Before Swine, and uh, you know that's ex the exact same one. And I, I, yeah. if you want to shock Japanese people, tell them that that's from the Bible. And I, you know, I'm not religious, but I knew that that's that's from the Bible. They think that that is a Japanese phrase. They think that it was made by Japanese people. They could have arrived at it separately. Okay, maybe, but it's there so specific. It's there so specific, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's and there's so many of those. So sometimes, like, and, you know, let's not get started on puns. Like, don't mm. get me started on puns and jokes. You know, those are like such a nightmare to translate most of the time, just yeah. because there's such specific things to how languages work in, con you know, in conjunction with how words sound and also like cultural references, like all those things combined, you know, yeah. then you really have to get creative. And then, you know, to make to make the the thing work properly in the target language, sometimes you have no choice but to transcreate. Mm. Yeah. Two things there. Remember with the jokes, I can remember two particular incidents in movie theaters where the jokes weren't really working across the languages. <laughs> <laughs> The first one I was was in America. I think I was maybe in junior year or something. I think the movie was called Traffic, and it dealt with uh, drug trafficking between Mexico and America. And there's a scene with Benicio del Toro in the in the opening, and he's just he's just kind of talking naturally, smoothly, and we're reading the subtitles and just listening. And you could hear two or three people around the audience cracking up, and the whole time I'm just like. What, why is that so funny? And I think that those subtitles were very droll. And I spoke with my friend afterwards, who's from Mexico. And he was like, oh, yeah, no, the subtitles weren't really good. That, that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> was, the second time was when I was in Japan. We had gone to see the first Harry Potter movie. And there's a part with Dumbledore where he's like, don't go to the second floor or you will die a horrible, horrible death. And we all just started cracking up and everyone in the theater was silent because it was like this perfectly delivered, sarcastic, funny line, the droll delivery for horrible and gruesome stuff. Right. But when you translate it, you're going to get you're going to get the meaning of it, but not the feeling of it. Well, people don't laugh in Japanese theaters that much anyway. Right. Culturally yes. speaking, they just they they're too shy and they feel like it gets in the way of a. Uh, you know the group or whatever any, i didn't go see any japanese comedies in the theater actually they don't have a whole lot <laughs> it's mainly on tv so yeah i, I <laughs> yeah i think it it probably goes back to like not wanting to be a nuisance which is kind of like yeah. built into becoming japanese yeah you know yeah. like don't disturb anybody else's space and i think that includes like noise wise so that's probably like my my theory as to why uh movie theaters can tend to be really quiet i i understand that but i i often think like if there's you know when i was a kid and i saw a nutty professor in the theater austin powers or something there's no way i would have not been able to laugh hmm. like if a movie comes like out like that in japan people just hold it in it just boggles my mind i don't understand oh. no i don't think people would like I don't know. Re like go that far. I, yeah, I don't, I don't recall like having an experience like that where like, I felt like I was the only one laughing, but if anything, <laughs> I was the only, the only one not laughing for not getting something, <laughs> you know? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But uh, on both sides, like I said, 
yeah. Well, people will laugh at you because you're the only person laughing in the theater. <laughs> also, that, that happened to me a few times in Japan, but that's another story. <laughs> Do you guys have a dream game to localize, to transcreate, or dream project in general? Ooh, I would really enjoy like working in anything Kingdom Hearts just because I'm such a big fan. But there's always that like that kind of tug of war where you don't want to touch something that you really like because you respect the source so much or the, the <laughs> you know, so you don't want to mess with it. So it's like you want you want to work with it because you want to be part of it, but it's you also want to leave it alone because it's so good, you know, or whatever. So that's kind of where I stand there. But yeah, that's probably one of the big series that I would I would mind having a hand in. Nice. What about you, Mel? Um, since I got to work on Romancing Saga 2 and 3, it would be fun to work on some of the Saga remasters, although I haven't been asked, <laughs> just to be clear. So okay. not working okay. on any of those. Um, but I've also been a big fan of all the Musou games, like Dynasty Warriors. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So it would be kind of fun to work on some of those, just to have my name attached to it. Otherwise, I feel like I've accomplished quite a bit already in my career, so um, not too many other series left on the bucket list. Although, it, again, I, it'd be an honor to work on anything new. So, Right, hmm. right, right. That's cool. Huh. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. You got anything I, else, uh, Mike? I, I would like to hear about my dream project. I, I, I'm a producer. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Producer on Shenmue 3. Uh, <laughs> yes. I kicked in 100 bucks. So, you know, I'd say credit for the production of that game. <laughs> I'm curious about the process and, and what it was like. I, I don't know. It's, it's so... Shenmue is such an interesting series to me. It's like... I mean, I got it on the Dreamcast back in college, you know, and... I think a lot of folks around me didn't understand it. They didn't really, they weren't connecting with it. And I was like, that doesn't matter. I'm going to be up until 2 a.m. playing this instead of studying for my exams. And it made me so happy. <laughs> it just, it reached me on such a deep level. And there were parts of it where I could say like, I feel like this is not such great writing or I feel like this is not such great acting. But somehow or other, it is the most thoroughly charming game to me. <laughs> and, and I do feel like Shenmue 3 maintained that charm, but I didn't have as many things that I could look back on and chuckle about. So I have to give you some credit there and say, you, you did a great job. However you did it, I don't know. But it, it felt like it still was Shenmue but maybe a little more polished. I don't know. Can you tell us about the process and what it was like to work on a game like that? <laughs> I don't know how much I can reveal due uh, to oh, context, okay. but I will say that uh, we were going for a polished feel just because that's what we do as localizers. Mm -hmm. We weren't intentionally trying to make any of the translations awkward, but <laughs> it happened to be that way. And this goes back to kind of your question about what do you want the audience to know about the localization process? Mm -hmm. And it's that depending if you're in-house or freelancing, you might not have access to the devs. You might not have access um, 
you know, to the screenwriters. You can't ask questions and get them answered immediately. Sometimes you will ask a question and they'll get back to you like six weeks later mm -hmm. when you're already off the project or you're already on like a way later badge. And you're like, well, we can't fix that now, can we? You know? um, and so with Shenmue 3, there were a lot of branching dialogues. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, okay. The other thing is as freelance uh, localization translators, we don't get paid that much money. We're mm. kind of almost at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to rates. And so they sent me a document with all of the branches, but in order to find that specific line in that specific branch within, you know, the translation software that we're using with this PDF on the side, that would require a lot, a lot of work. And uh -huh. some of the lines were really short. Uh, one mm -hmm. specific one I remember was just, oh, in Japanese. <laughs> and oh, in Japanese could mean anything from excuse me right. to oh, sorry. Or it just could be a stutter, like, um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say here. Mm. And if O came up in the script and we don't know which part of the dialogue it was in or which branch belonged to, we weren't sure if it would belong in the sorry category or in the excuse me category. And it was kind of hard to see that. And oh, how long how long I, you guys been translating, by the way? Been localizing? Um professionally? I would say for me. I started in 2010, so 12 years at this point. 12 years at this point, right? But I mean, I did some translation before that as well on the Jet program. But if are you're there... talking about video game translation, then yeah, 2010. Are there trends in translation? I guess they they go in tandem with the video game industry. Have you how have you seen the video game industry and the localization industry change in those 12 years, if at all? I think the big thing is the use of translation software. When I okay. got started, a lot of it was handled basically offline in files. We would use Excel. You would have to reference glossaries in Excel <laughs> and any previous translations in Excel or PDFs. But right. now that we have translation software, it makes that a little easier to reference old material or you know set terms by the client mm -hmm. or set terms by the team if you know it's a shared project and there are multiple translators. So. The use of software is definitely helping us there. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese side as well, do you know if they're translating English to Japanese using the software as well? Do you know anything about that side of it? I would assume so. I I know one translator who does Eda Jade, and she also uses the same software that I use, which is called MemoQ, if you're interested. Okay. I think a lot of gaming companies or a lot of agencies use the same piece of software. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get into the industry, might want to look into learning MemoQ. Okay. That's cool. All right. I guess that, that's it. If you guys have any parting uh, thoughts or things you would like to say to the aspiring trans creationist localizer, anything like that? Do you want to start off here or? Well, he just told him, get on MemoQ. Yeah. <laughs> get, on, get on MemoQ or anything else? Any, any other? Uh... Uh, my biggest piece of advice would be to network. Mm. Uh, try to learn who's in the industry. Try to learn from what you know, whatever they publish, whether it's blogs or Twitter posts or whatever. Uh, just read about the industry, learn about the industry, learn from the people who are in the industry, get connected. Go to well, maybe not so much now with COVID, but as much as possible, uh, go to some you know events 
and try to network people in person as well. You say that because translators can be uh, a bookish lot and uh, don't, <laughs> don't, don't not too social sometimes. Is that is that why you want to give that advice? What he's saying um, is COVID restrictions. Just mainly just for COVID. Okay. I just when you said go out there and network, I was thinking in my mind of like the translator that doesn't go out, just is always yeah. reading manga at home or something, you know. Well, I think for me is when I started out, I always thought of the translation industry as kind of a dog eat dog world. You know, hmm. you're against everyone else as a freelance translator, at least. Hmm. Like if you can pull in the jobs, great for you, but you know, you're not out there to help other people. But now that I'm a little more established and a little bit further down the line in my career, I feel like it's almost the opposite. Like the more translators you know, the more, you know, you can help each other out when, you know, if you're short on work or, you know, if you want to get into certain fields or, or whatever, like the more people, you know, the more help you can get. And so yeah. I think it's great to network. I mean, this isn't just translation specific advice. Mm. Uh, this is mm -hmm. any, any, yeah. any field that you're in just get to know more people yeah, yeah it's like the movie industry yeah. need the connections you feel the same way amelia yeah absolutely in terms of getting into it for sure you know the more people you know the easier perhaps it is to get your foot in the door which you know makes a, di a big difference because once once you do once you're actually working in it then you can actually like get more jobs it kind of snowballs mm -hmm. um so my personal experience, um, yeah, exactly. Like I probably wouldn't even be in the industry if I hadn't met Mel, which happened through knowing uh, like one of my old uh, cl like classmates kind of from university who happened to know Mel. So it was like this weird kind of chain, like, you know, uh, degrees of separation, mm -hmm. basically that kind of led me to Mel. And then, you know, things just went from there. I'm still I'm still fairly new in the industry. I've only been I've only been translating professionally for like the past what like three, maybe four years. I think around four. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's um, when it comes to you know trying to get your foot in the door. Yeah, like networking is is key. You know, mm -hmm. uh, like maybe this is like a weird thing to suggest but get in twitter and find translation twitter and start following people because mm -hmm. <laughs> people like mel and a lot of other translators they they offer a lot you know they often tweet about uh resources that you know are related to trans to the, to the field of translation um sometimes they talk about issues that come up and things like that knowing things like that is really important and you know getting to know these people building a relationship with them is often like how you can get into it and as for like building your own kit in terms of like the abilities that you need to do the field, like studying, you know, you kind of never stop studying and you yeah. have to just keep learning and yeah, just like hone your craft because it's not just about knowing Japanese. It's about, as you said before, like you need to be able to write well as well. Mm -hmm. um, like, so don't just study Japanese, study, you know, your, your target uh, language as well. Like, for example, I, I speak Spanish fluently, but I, I don't think I would necessarily, like, feel super comfortable trans translating into Spanish because, like, my my Spanish, even though it's fine and serviceable, like, I don't feel like it's, like, super nice literature level. Mm. So at this point, you know, um, having been so out of the, out of that element, so <laughs> for, like, the past, like, 15 years, I haven't even, I've been away <laughs> from that sort of world. Mm. Um 
but yeah, just don't stop studying and don't give up on it, I guess. That's awesome. Yeah. It never ends, which is great. <laughs> and it never ends in the native language either. That's true. That is true. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you for coming on. It's been an awesome episode. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. It really has been nice to talk to you. It's great to hear about all this stuff. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you liked this episode, please subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Music. And if you really liked us, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gaming guiden so in some other episodes we might not have uh spelled out our tears too well but uh we're still figuring this out but we're gonna have a one dollar tier that's basically a tip jar and we'll give you a shout out as well and then our five dollar tier uh you get bonus episodes and uh uh yeah you have access to that at uh patreon.com slash gaming guiden so check that out and then uh our goals ultimately with this podcast <laughs> is tell mike uh, well, I would like to get myself a, a Mr. FBGA. I would, I would really like to have uh, some use for my CRT that I've been carrying around for a while now and have nothing to connect to. So I think a Mr. would be great. I'd love to play some of those old uh, RPGs. Um, I've been going back and trying to play them in Japanese, and I'd love to do that in front of my CRT with a nice FBGA device. This is how much of a retro gamers we are, everybody. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, this is like one of the major things we'll do with, the, I'll just tell you right now, this is one of the major things we'll do with the money from, uh, from Patreon. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, maybe we'll make some bonus content out of it as well after we pass If you know, if I don't want to be too overly confident, but if we pass yeah. that mark, uh, then, uh, you know, we'll make some content out of it and you'll, you know, people will get something out of it. Uh, we'll do uh, let's plays or whatever. Uh, and then also my, uh, my goal is a Neo Geo CDZ. When I first went to Japan in 2004 for the first time, I was asking people about it and they were probably $300 at that time. And I should have gotten one then, but I never did. Now they're $700 because of COVID. So, uh, the gaming market is nuts now. So, uh, yeah. So I, maybe that sounds ridiculous to some, but you know, those, that's what we're doing here. So there you go. Hope you hope you guys enjoyed it. That was awesome. Thank and we'll catch you, you later. Yeah.